Have you ever seen this cat does not exist.com? I, as of uh, courtesy of some people we know, as of a few minutes ago, unfortunately, I have. So if you type that URL into your browser, it's going to give you a picture of a cat. This and this cat does not exist.com. That's the address. This cat does not exist.com. Yes. And when you type it in, it gives you a picture of a cat. And the cat looks pretty normal uh-huh. for a bit. Yes. And then all of a sudden, whammo, nightmare oh, is that, fuel. Is that what it takes? You just have to keep going and going? You have to keep refreshing because what it's doing is it's machine generating pictures of cats based on millions of cats from the internet. And then you get beautiful things like this. And I think, I don't know if these are cached, but maybe uh, each of these would, is a uh, one-off. Why would you show me that? Look, it's that cat got splinched, man. It's it, it had a teleporter accident. It's fine. Have you ever seen those infamous screenshots from I forget? It was like one of those PS4 baseball games like MLB The Show or something where like a couple of the players faces glitched out in like the most just god awful body horror style that you've ever seen. Do, do, do you, you not remember about? when when we took Chloe was in the office one day when EA released some game face game and we used her as the game oh, face god. model? Oh, nightmares. So somebody, uh, before I saw this cat does not exist, I saw this person does not exist.com. I feel, find and, that one much worse. And, and, but yeah, so, but before I knew what the concept was, I just assumed it was a bunch of pictures of dead people <laughs> <laughs> and between, between people who are actually deceased and non people who are generated by machine. I really am not sure which one is more morbid. <laughs> Welcome to Brad and Will Made a Tech Pod. I'm Will. I'm Brad, and I think that I actually am starting to feel kind of comfortable with this setup we have going. Hey, welcome to the show, Brad. We're, yeah, we're really excited to have you here this week. And, oh, thanks. Um, it's good. It's to, have, thanks, for, to have. thanks for having me as a guest on this podcast. <laughs> um, no, I'm, it, I think I'm starting to actually kind of get a feel for this remote thing that we're I doing. mean, there's something about doing it for eight hours a day, seven days a week, that probably <laughs> yeah. is going to boost your uh, skill level, I would think. Uh, you know what I've learned in a lot of ways in the last few weeks is that people can get used to just about anything. There you go. There you uh, go. And including um, uh, emails through the video conference. It is. It's, it's, it is our favorite episode of the month. It is yep. email time. This is the last episode of April. Can you believe it's already the last episode of April? I Time has lost. It's like it's becoming quickly a cliche right now, but time has absolutely lost all meaning for me. <laughs> so... Sure. I went to get um, I went to look up a Douglas Adams quote from a Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy short story for a pithy uh, 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 snarky tweet the other day. And as a result, I'm now rereading Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy for the first time in about 20 years, 15 years. And he says time is an illusion. Lunchtime doubly so. It's very true. (laughs) I could see that for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh. Uh, you want to jump right into it and get some, get, yeah. uh, turn some Q's into A's? Yes. I started to bring up how we've been doing some intermittent fasting around here. And maybe we should get into like the science of uh, digestive. You're dangerously near met- tech bro nonsense here, Brad. Meta- you got to be careful. Metabolic types. Hey, it's, cut, it's cutting down on my caloric intake, if nothing else. Look, 
Back when I was a boy, we used to call intermittent fasting skipping breakfast. Yeah, that's basically exactly what yeah. it is. Hey, yeah. it turns out if you only eat lunch and dinner, you're fasting. Yeah. So, I like to think yeah. of it as slowing. That's basically how it's going around here. All right. Uh, where did these emails come into again? Uh, we have an email address at techpod at content.town. Again, that's the one. That's techpod at content.town. All right. Uh, that's where these emails came into. Uh, first email, Sean from Vegas. Could you guys talk about the evolution of mice? PS2 Ooh. to USB, ball sensors to laser sensors. What makes a modern mouse sensor good, and why is it unnecessary or necessary to have 16,000 DPI sensors? Uh, maybe talk about how that stuff translates across different resolutions and screen sizes. Uh, the Logitech Lightspeed tech and how it is actually viable using uh, wireless mice in games now. That is, there's a lot. There's a there's a lot here. Um, the mouse was invented by Xerox Park in the <laughs> late sixties. Yeah. Uh, no, was it, it really? Was it really that long ago? It's a long. It, I don't. It's sixties or seventies. It's old. The mouse okay. is old. Yeah. Um, remember, Bill uh, Jobs went to Park and saw yes. the GUI running at Park. Oh yes, when he that, ripped that it off for the for the Apple II or uh, I've sorry, seen the Mac. I've seen Pirates of Silicon Valley. Yes. Um, um, but so uh, yes. I was just say for all intents and purposes, people started using mice for personal computers really in mass when Windows 3.1 came out. Sure. Um, before that, you didn't really need a mouse for DOS. It didn't work in a lot of uh, in a lot of um, a lot of programs. And you would have needed like an actual driver to be loaded at runtime, spe probably specific to your app before Windows made the mouse a universal tool. Wow. Application specific yeah. mouse drivers. Holy shit. I mean, it may not have been that it was an application specific mouse driver, but it might have been that you bought a mouse from a vendor who who your software didn't support their vendor's right. driver. Right. Yeah. 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 So like, uh, the think thinking back on stuff like that really makes it very apparent how much is taken for granted now and how many things are happening under the hood that you don't think about. Yeah. But, like, like each things, generation things just assume virtualized more and more stuff. Right. right? Yeah. So I like think things that it's tempting to assume just work don't just work. You know, like there is something going on under there controlling absolutely everything. Oh, if there's one truth in computing, it's that literally nothing just <laughs> works. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> how many um, uh, how, how many ball mice did you go through? I think we maybe just had the one in my family because I came to computers late enough that I might have oh, had a couple. Man. But but we, I, I was on to a laser mouse or an optical mouse pretty quick. So I had um, I had a Wang mouse that came with my Wang 386. Wang. Back then, you would get a keyboard and mouse with your computer, which was nice. You know, you'd sure. go to Walmart and pick up pick up the whole thing. Um, I had a bunch of ball. I had ball mice until probably the IntelliMouse Explorer two or three, which is the first yeah. laser, first optical mouse I bought. I think um, wasn't that just about everybody's first optical mouse? It was the first. It was really good one. one. Yeah. yeah. Um, I had, so I had track balls, which are basically just a mouse that's upside down and the ball is poking out more. <laughs> sure. Um, what do, you, what do you like about a track ball? I've never seen the appeal. It's good on your wrist. So if you have okay. wrist problems, oh, sure. the track yeah. ball keeps your hand up off the table and okay. you can't use the track ball in a way that's going to damage yourself as easily. Okay. That's fair. It's bad. Uh, also, I read a blues news post in probably 1996 or 1997 where Jason Bergman, who's now at Bethesda, I think. Yes. Yes. Um, uh, told how he 
Hmm? Looney Boy. Looney? Yeah, he yeah. he posted his one-handed quake technique, <laughs> which was based. Do you remember this? No. I think he bound the right mouse button to walk forward and he would play on a trackball. Oh, I did the same thing. I was totally a right mouse to walk guy for a oh very long time. Incredibly I mean, there was long no, time. No, they, nobody invented ADS back then, so you didn't yeah. need the right mouse button for anything. Yeah. Um, but anyway, yeah, that that uh, the trackballs for a long time. Um, once I switched over to adjustable DPI mice, I, it changed everything. Yeah. Like that was a big deal. You mean, and, you mean on mouse adjustment? Y- yeah. So, so there's, it, it, mice are complicated and it, how, why they're complicated depends on which operating system you use. But assuming you're using windows 10, basically you should always leave your mouse sensitivity in the OS at whatever the stock setting is turn off acceleration and then do everything else on the mouse with the application that comes with your, you know, your fancy gaming mouse. If it's a logic mouse, it's G hub. If it's a razor mouse, it's, um, uh, uh, razor synergy. No, that's not it. It's on my laptop. I'd have to look. Um, but the, the, the tool that razor provides, does that have to do with like sampling rates and making sure that things aren't like, I'm, I'm assuming if you do that in windows, it's potentially busting down some sampling rate or something that you don't want to be too low. Well, so in Windows, it's just doing it. It's it's just slowing down the movement of the cursor. And okay. Okay. if you do it in the in the tool, it's changing the rate. It's changing the sensitivity of the sensor. Right. So there, there's there's two numbers with the sensor that matter. One is the DPI, which is the the basically the measurements per inch that it that it registers. Right. The, res- so how, the resolution. How many, essentially. The, yeah, it's the resolution of the sensor. Um, the other is the polling rate, which is the refresh. You know how often it sends updates to the to the system. Uh, some computers with bad USB systems are not going to like the higher polling rates for a mouse, like the thousand hertz polling rates. So if you have weird behavior, sporadic jumpiness, you want to turn that down to 500. But generally there, higher is better. With the DPI, you want to set that. Basically, what you want to do is turn your in-game sensitivity way, way down and turn the DPI way, way up. So you're getting more data for each inch of travel on the mouse which means that you don't like, I don't know if you've ever played a first person shooter or something. You've, you zoom in with a big scope and you move the mouse a couple of inches and it kind of chunks over. Yes. Like there's like stair steps. Yep. That's because your DPI is too low for the amount that you're moving the mouse in game. Cause often like an in-game zoom will just be an FOV change. And then they pull the sensitivity on the mouse way back. So you're not flailing around like, like crazy look while you're looking down, you know, the two of a big telescope. Right. Um, let's see uh, what else uh, does he, he have in about, here? Uh, light speed, yes, which is which just, I think we've talked about a little bit a few months it ago. Seems, I think because you, you like messed it, around yeah. with it, right? Yeah, I've been using it. I have a I have a Logitech. My mouse that I use now is a Logitech G Pro that Logitech. I don't have to hold it up for the camera. Um, that Logitech sent me a few months ago, and um, the light speed thing is just a proprietary wireless standard that. It's a proprietary wireless technology from Logitech. It is not a standard that lets them get higher polling rates at the expense of much higher battery use. So, you know, a normal wireless mouse that uses Bluetooth is designed to make the battery last as long as humanly possible. The light speed stuff basically just says, hey, we don't care about battery. We're going to plug this thing in at the end of every day. We're going to have a couple of two, three days worth of battery life. But we're not going to have six month battery life like you would get on a productivity wireless mouse. Right, right. Um, and then you as a uh, as a professional prize pot winning PUBG player are happy uh, with, yeah, with the wireless. It, okay, it is. I can't tell a difference between the wired and wireless. Wow. And, and actually, 
not having the wire is nice because you have a little bit less drag on the mouse. So there's, you know, it's the same amount of muscle to move it an inch when it's all the way on the right side of the pad or all the way on the left side of the pad. Whereas even with like a nice mouse bungee with the mouse cord and even with a light mouse cord, you still have a little bit more drag than that. Yeah, I can see the appeal there. So one other topic he brought up, he mentioned PS2 ports. I think we talked about this a few months ago at some point, but yeah, but a, why do we still have remind me why we still have PS2 ports on a lot of motherboards and when when are those finally going away? I think my motherboard doesn't have a PS2 port. Really? Hang on. I'm going to I'm just going to stand up right now and check. Yeah, I'll be right back. All right, I'm back. I don't even know if you can hear me right now, but I have a PS2 port. Singular. Will is crawling around. <laughs> I'm just going to narrate. He looks like he's been spelunking. I've been in. You've been in the cable mines, Brad. Yes. This is a shocking moment. Okay. Hit this me. is the first computer I've ever owned since the '90s that doesn't have a PS2 port. Nothing. Wow. Nothing. Just wow. USBs. Jeez, you're you're free. You're yeah, untethered. So th- uh, it's a Z Z three ninety gigabyte board, and I'm shocked. Shocked, I tell you. <laughs> I'm still on a Z one seventy gigabyte board, and it has a single PS two port on it. Mm. So. Uh, we left PS two ports because for a long time they would get a higher you could get higher polling rates with right. PS two with PS two ports right. than than the mouse the USB That's ports. Right. It's just one of those tenacious old technologies that just has not quite let go yet. I mean, also. Like it is possible that you can kill a motherboard, kill the USB bus on a motherboard by like shorting. Like I've killed USB on a laptop before by plugging in uh, an Arduino that I was working on and having the circuit wired up the wrong way. Yikes. And um, if you had a PS2 port and the USB bus was dead, you would be able to presumably boot that thing up and tell what was wrong with it. But realistically, who has PS2 keyboards anymore? Yeah. All right. Um. Let's go ahead and do this email since uh, we're talking about handheld input devices already Mm. Uh, from Jeremiah. Uh, You talked about Joy-Con drift in the last podcast, and it reminded me that I have a slight drift in my Xbox Elite controller. Oh, my God. I know, right? It recently developed, so I haven't exactly gotten around to getting a hold of Microsoft or even uh, daring to attempt it. uh, I'm sorry, daring to attempt to fix it myself. Uh, But I just thought you should know. There's a $160 stick drift to be wary of on top of our Joy-Con dilemma. Do you know what the warranty is on those things? That's not a lifetime, surely not a lifetime warranty, but maybe it's long enough for him to see if they'll do something. You you know, on a $50 controller, I would say you're probably out of luck on the $160 controller. I would call and complain about that. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Like, that that like, might just be from a con- like customer retention standpoint. Even even if it's out of warranty, they might just be like, oh, he was willing to buy the expensive controller. We should probably make sure he stays a customer. <laughs> yeah, that, that this definitely feels like a situation where like y- you should take care of your best customers. Yes. And I would not expect like I've used the hell out of my first gen elite controller and have had no drift problems. I haven't seen anybody complaining about drift problems on elite controllers. This is the fir- first time I've seen that as well. Yeah. Although uh, I, I I forgot to mention last week when we were talking about the Joy Cons that uh, one of my, that my best 360 controller had pretty bad right stick drift. Oh no, not the one with the twisty circle pad. Yes, it was totally the one with the transforming <sighs> D pad. It was my favorite controller. But uh, <sighs> any any first person shooter that had a really small dead zone, like uh, I remember, what for whatever reason, Borderlands Two was a major offender. 
Yeah, just Borderlands did. 2 had had really wicked fast controls back right, in the like day. Any, any game with really sensitive look on the right stick, if I just took my thumb off of it, the aim, like the view would just start slowly drifting in random direction. It was a great time. But um, I my I fix it got the Joy-Con uh, sticks back in stock. So I ordered a couple. Nice. And I'm going to swap oh, cool. them. I'll, 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 maybe I'll do it on stream or maybe I wanna, I'll put it out for the patrons or something. I don't know. I, I, I want to hear how that goes. Do you have a, any sense of whether those are like genuine Nintendo replacement parts or are they aftermarket? I, I'm going to look very closely at the markings when I un- <laughs> unwrap them. I haven't okay. opened the I haven't opened the little anti-static pouches yet. I Did figured s- if anybody got real parts, it would be iFixit versus sure. the rebe- yes. the people on it, Amazon. I, I'm not. I've never bought anything from them, but I've used some of their guides before. They seem pretty on top of their stuff from what I've seen. So we did a whole series of videos with them at Tested oh, over the years, okay. and they're awesome. Kyle okay. Kyle Weens is the CEO and is like it, he often was the guy taking taking iPhones apart in New Zealand and stuff like that. Right. Um. They're they're. It's funny. He came. I think he he said he came to this because came to iFixit and started iFixit because of environmentalism. Like he felt bad huh. throwing away all the electronics he did in sure, a repair yeah. shop. Oh, I definitely get that. And wanted someplace that had a voice. So yeah, highly recommend them. Their their toolkits are awesome. I have one of their their like screwdrivers with the spinny tops are my all time yes. favorite like repair yes. screw drops screwdrivers. I've I've never bought any tools from them because I have a bunch of cheapos already. But uh, people recommend those those. Various like uh, controller, you know, if tri-wing screwdrivers and some of that more esoteric stuff, I see people recommending that that stuff all the time. Um, did you see real quick, not to get off too much of a tangent here, but there was a link going around in our Discord. Uh, I think it started on an imager post, but a guy essentially built his own Nintendo Switch for about two hundred dollars out of purely out of parts. Wow, really? And for two hundred bucks? And, I, I, and well, to be fair, like I, as soon as I saw that, I was like, maybe we could use a second Switch around here for that price. Plus, it would be fun to put together. But then I. A, I looked at the parts list and I mean, I'm talking every part he sourced independently. I mean, everything like, like the speakers and the whole thing, yes, speakers, microphones, <sighs> like I, I almost want to say like card, like SD card reader. That might be a little too itemized, but like it looked like it was like a probably a 25 item long list of parts that he bought from individual like eBay auctions and stuff. Huh. Um, but it was like I, main board was separate. LCD was separate. Digitizer was separate. Uh, just about every part that could be pulled apart in that thing was pulled apart. I don't know how I, I can't imagine that it's less than 200 bucks to get all the pieces. So and I think pres- a lot of these, a lot of these, I think were parted out from broken switches, like switches that were broken in uh, some other way. And it was just like, oh, they harvested the motherboard from this thing because the screen was broken or whatever, you know? Huh? So that's, that's what stopped me more than the labor of putting it together, which sounds kind of fun. I wonder was, how janky was, it is. Yeah. Who knows? I mean, obviously if it breaks or something goes wrong, you're out of luck. Well, but like also, I have to imagine that like getting the seal right between the screen and the digitizer and the front fascia is, is hard. Like getting the glue and stuff on there. Seems like not because you can buy aftermarket screen covers and digitizers and that seems fine because they come with adhesive. Oh, uh, okay. Ready to go. Like I've looked into replacing the digitizer before and that, that part looks like not a big problem. Huh? Uh, I just thought that was an incredibly clever way to, to put a switch together like get literally, get, yeah, get past <laughs> quite, the shortage. Quite literally with uh with the kind of the markup that's out I'm, there right now being completely insane i wonder i wonder if you get did he, so i guess he ended up with a v1 i guess he ended up with v1 hardware because of the of the you know because there's probably not as much v2 hardware in the channel yet right probably that's probably that's my guess yeah huh but interesting but still, for for 200 bucks to get a, a switch at all right now is uh pretty impressive yeah that's amazing I paid that for a light a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> sure. 
Um, let's see. How about uh, this email from Lucas? Do you guys still see dual booting as something worthwhile? Anytime I've ever done it, while I've enjoyed using the Linux side, especially when doing development, I always seem to use the Windows side more. The inconvenience of rebooting to play a game sometimes is too much. So this is a tough question. I I don't I used to dual boot everything like I got one of the first things I wrote for maximum PC was about how to dual boot four OSs or something on one computer, which was <laughs> wow. ludicrous. Yeah, um, I don't I think in the age of VMs, when yes. all CPUs support hypervisors or or, or um, the, the VT extensions, I, I I think just run it in. If you want to learn Linux, put it in a VM. Yep. That is the beginning and the end of this question to me at this point. The, the only exception is if you're doing it for productivity reasons. Like if you have a, like I, I work from home, I, my gaming computer is my work computer. And sometimes like it is challenging when I have shit that I have to get done for work to sit down here and be like, oh man, I could be playing Overwatch or something instead. You know, if, if back in the day when I was running Linux for work and Windows for home, it was awesome to have a computer that was a work computer that was just for doing work on. Sure. Dual booting kind of gives you that on the same machine. Uh, one of the rubs with this recently, and I don't know if this is like a UEFI thing or as as the way that computers have booted has changed over the years. I'm not sure where this is coming from, but it feels like the bootloaders have gotten more complicated or the way they want to take control of your system has gotten more onerous to the point that like I looked into it actually not long ago. Like, what would it take to run Windows 10 and Linux on a machine at the same time? And I saw a bunch of stuff about the like grub is the bootloader for Linux and it wants to take over the whole system, but then the Windows 10 bootloader can interfere with that and it can just turn into a gigantic mess in a way that it wasn't before. The 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 big problem is always that the Windows bootloader loader doesn't acknowledge anything but Windows. Okay. So you, then Grub has to get one layer deeper than the Windows bootloader. Um, the, the, thing, the thing that I kind of want to do is put a hypervisor on a machine where I can run multiple OSs on the same machine inside VMs so that, but, that have you looked into that much? Because that's getting really popular and it's becoming I, very possible with the hypervisors and also just the raw level of hardware horsepower that's out there. So I know people who do that and keep like their dev environment on the hypervisor in, in a VM that lives in the hypervisor. The thing I haven't talked to anybody about is how well or haven't done any reading about is how well it works with things like, you know, 3D accelerators for games. And like if I'm going to take if I can shut down the second VM and have the main one get full resources, right? It's kind of interesting. It's essentially what the Xbox One does for its OS and games, right? Because it it's a like hypervisor. It sounds like we're getting there. I mean, in the server world, that's becoming pretty commonplace. Are you familiar with uh, ESXi? I assume that's how you pronounce that. I've never heard anybody say it out loud. It's the VMware bare metal hypervisor. I think that's right. I, I uh, you broke up a little bit, but I'll, I'll I'm going to say yes. That is exactly how you pronounce <laughs> it. You nailed it, Brad. ESXi is the is the acronym. I assume that you just say all those letters out loud. There's also yeah, Prox, sexy. <laughs> there's also Proxmox, which is a, a, a kind of open source equivalent. I think. Um, yeah, but they're both they're both low level hypervisors that are meant to basically run multiple kind of server OSs side by side and not actually run any, like only run the OS manager directly on the hardware and so you've got like i see people running like freenas in one vm and debian in another vm and like you know maybe something else all on the same machine and that stuff seems to interoperate pretty well so so the hyper so if you don't know what a hypervisor is that is exactly it it's just a really thin os that is basically just a host for vms for a specific brand of vm um i i'm sir i mean servers have been doing that for years yeah um 
I mean, I think we even, I feel like we even had a dev server when we were at Whiskey that was when we had bad internet that they could do test pushes on that ran all the different servers that we needed to to test a site on one hypervisored machine. But um, it's it's I, I I'm not sure it's there for consumers yet. I'd be interested to hear feedback from people if they've tried to do this. I've I've heard stories. I won't name any company names, but I, I've got a friend of a friend who works at an extremely well known uh, television channel. Mm-hmm. Not not the one I work for. <laughs> um, uh, and they are virtualizing all of their, their whole like production pipeline with exactly that stuff. Like they are almost moving back to what sounds like a dumb terminal model of like all of the actual production stuff runs on distant servers and they just sort of sit down at a terminal and do all of their video production work, you know, with the computer bananas physically somewhere else. It sounds amazing, but also like kind of frightening to me. Well, I uh, mean, in terms of like the developers that I work for, a lot of them do their um, development environment because like at this point, if you're if you're doing like Unity work and you have a complicated pipeline with a bunch of plugins and a bunch of other stuff, it can take a day or two worth of human labor to get your pipeline working, like to get your your terminal set up again. If like Windows bombs out or you have to reinstall Windows or you have some driver eat something or something like that. And the nice thing about doing the VMs for that is that you can just roll back the state at any moment. You know, you can go back to whatever your save snap last snapshot was. Totally. Which means that you can do things that are risky without actually having any risk or having very little risk. Yeah. Um, last oh, thing I, I'll say about if, oh, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, if you need a good free VM, VirtualBox is uh, free. You can download from the internet. It runs inside Windows, inside Linux, inside Mac OS, uh, whatever other stuff you might potentially use it for. Is, is it still good? I, I used it years ago, just to kind of dabbled a little bit, but I didn't know if it had kept up with the times. The price is correct for dabbling. <laughs> okay. Um, there are better about, options uh, out there for paid. What about uh, what about Hyper V in, in Windows 10? Is that available in all versions of Windows 10? I think that's only that in like Pro. A, okay, I've got but Pro, so maybe that's the case. Isn't that a hypervisor? It is. Yes. It's yeah. So then so. that's pushing your windows down a layer and your and windows is running in the hypervisor if you have Hyper-V on. Well, I mean, I meant for like if you wanted to like spin up a Linux instance or something like that. I, my experience has been that Windows VMs don't do well with Linux, but it, that may have changed now since Windows is more Linux friendly than it has ever been before. Yeah, like that. that's why this topic is kind of complicated for me is that I never quite know like what's what's going to run close to natively on in a given situation versus like, you know, like in, in the worst case scenario, a VM isn't going to even have access to like graphics hardware and you're going to be running at some like awful low resolution with like just terrible like, you know, draw performance on the windows you're dragging around and stuff like that. You're not going to get the cool transparent window effects. Yeah. Then what's the point of using a computer? <laughs> yeah. I want my um, Linux, my Linux desktop to look like something from hackers, man. Yeah. So I'm, I'm super excited about the, I can't believe I've become this person, but I am genuinely very excited about the windows subsystem for Linux two stuff as you, mouthy as that title is. You've uh, mentioned it. I'm, I don't know what to think of this, Brad. I, I'm excited to check it out because I genuinely, I have like an actual use case for having access to a Linux environment now, as opposed to just wanting to feel cool by messing with it. Yeah. Um, so that's that's exciting. But uh, last thing I was going to mention real fast, and I just barely have even become aware of this scene in the last couple of days. Um, there is a movement to achieve exactly what you were talking about with with direct access to, to you know, graphics accelerators and stuff like that. Like there's a straight up subreddit out there for people who are running Linux with Windows in a VM passing through a like a second GPU. Wow. I, I, I assume that actually requires two installed graphics cards. I'm not sure. <laughs> 
or you use the integrated and the and the discrete. Oh, yeah, that's that's sure that would make sense. But uh, but they are like the whole point is to be able to play Windows games in a Windows VM in Linux, and it and seems to be maybe a little hacky, but also possible. Having spent a lot of time in the mid two thousands trying to play Windows games in Linux, I know it has come a long way. Yeah, but still, I like. If your hobby is trying to play Windows games in Linux, that is a thing everyone who was interested in that conceptually should try. If you want to play the games, <laughs> yeah. just fucking just, install Windows, man. Yeah, or buy a PS4. Yeah. 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 I'm with you. Um, Anthony writes in. Hey, guys. On episode 30, uh, Mike Micah was talking about how CRTs work, and Brad asked how the electron beam is steered into the correct position on the phosphor. It's actually quite simple. There are alignment mag- magnets that alter their magnetic field to push the electron beam horizontally and vertically. Not really a question, but I hope it was interesting. Have a good day. Brad, they're even better than magnets. Wait, what? Yeah. How do they, how, how do they, how, how do they, how do they work? Electro. Well, I'm I mean, sorry. You I'm sorry. Talk to the ICP about that. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, electromagnets, man, they're electromagnetic coils and they can steer the electron beam. Just based on the current that you feed them. Uh-huh. All right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's why if you put a big giant magnet by the back of your TV, your TV we used ah, to get really wonky and weird looking. Okay, that explains everything. That explains a lot about my childhood, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, that's good to know. That sounds so simple when you put it that way. I just never would have thought about it. The more you know, ding. Uh, they have to be electromagnets because it have to, have to happen very, very fast. Because it, sure. it was moving a single beam of electrons back and forth across the CRT. Right. 480 uh, lines worth 60 times a second. Quite a few hertz. Uh, I have, I have, I have, I have good news for you. Electricity moves at the speed of light. It turns out. I don't know about you, but after talking to Micah about that stuff, I had a kind of extended moment of panic about the vanishing CRTs. I described, look, I went on eBay before we posted that episode and I looked up those Sony reference monitors. Oh, the PVMs or PWMs. Maybe I should get one of these. Finally, I've been thinking about it for years. And then I looked at how much they cost. I was like, nope, that's a no for me. I think we're I think we're moving squarely into sort of collector territory, like demand pushing prices up on those things significantly. Yeah, like I can get away with a lot of making a lot of dumb purchases, but if I come in with a CRT in the year of our Lord 2020, my wife is gonna have a real serious <laughs> conversation with me. Sure. And she will be right too. Uh I got I got so paranoid about that stuff that I actually FaceTimed with my mom the other day and had her do a walkthrough in their basement. <laughs> Just to do a quick do a quick audit of the CRTs that they haven't thrown out that are still down there. Oh, Mike, see if they had anything uh, good. I think they've got some good stuff. I'm pretty got excited. Trinitrons, you got a square well, flat there are Sony. Three different Sonys down there. One of them is my is my old CRT computer monitor. It's a um, it's a 21 inch. It's Trinitron inside, but it's actually Silicon Graphics branded. Oh, and not, fancy. And not the cra- and not the crappy later era SGI logo, yeah. but the good the good original one. The Jurassic Park era one. Where the hell did you get that? Like a surplus from a university I, or something? Yes, I, I got it on eBay back in the day. This was around like 2000, wow. 2001. Probably like, it was the last monitor I ever bought before LCDs became a thing. And I got it for dirt cheap on eBay and it was like brand new in the box. It had, it, I'm not sure it had ever really been used. Wow. Um, but it's a, a nice 21 inch Trinitron monitor that's got a BNC component or like, you know. Wow. I don't know if that's RBG, RGB inputs or whatever. Um They've got a uh, they've got a Vega from roughly that time period. It's like one of the flat twenty seven inches that I think has component in. It's a gold mine, and they have on eBay. A, and they have one of the uh, mid nineties Trinitrons in the black case. That's more a little bit more standard curved screen. And I wa- I need to check, but I think that's one of the models that you can mod for RGB pretty easily. 
Ooh. And those are both so, 27 inch. So it's like I'm kind of, they're sitting on a gold mine of cathode ray tubes. I, I had the last CRT I had was a 24 inch 16 by 10 flat Sony Trinitron. And I think I put it on the free table at work when I when I got a, a 20, the 24 inch Dell flat panels. And I'm pretty bummed about that now I was, when I, I think was about just it. about to ask how much you regret that decision. <laughs> I mean, it was that thing weighed 50 or 60 pounds. It seemed oh, like yeah. it was it was like it was it was the kind of thing that you could carry with one person, but it was big enough yeah. that like the penalty for failure was tragic. So, oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, um, I, it was always a two person carry. I would have to double check with Vinny on the exact specs of this. But when he moved out here, um, the he brought an HD it was it was it was one of those HD Trinitron CRTs. Jesus, like you remember like that a monitor brief, or a, or a TV? Oh, it was a television, and I'm pretty sure it was a 36 inch. And I have a pretty good memory of it, it requiring him, me, and Dave Snyder to move that thing. So I I I bought at Best Buy after in the Super Bowl sale one year a floor model Panasonic 36 inch CRT. <sighs> Boy, it was four by three. And I left it in Knoxville when I moved to California because I was like, oh, yeah. there's no way this thing is getting oh, yeah. here. Oh yeah. And it was, it was like, it took three people to carry it up the stairs into our, into my apartment. And we didn't even make it. We had to set it down and the dipshit that it was carrying it with me, it got scratched on the way oh, in the door. It wasn't a bad no. scratch, but it was just like the oh. kind of thing that you know is there and just eats yeah. at you. Oh, that's terrible. Yeah. I gave it to my sister-in-law. Uh, she uh, loved it. It was great. Uh, Last thing I'll say real fast, uh, back, you, you probably saw, it was probably just under a year ago when Digital Foundry ran a video or two about how great CRTs are. Yeah. And, and there was kind of a, the market for them. Uh, and there was kind of a, right. And there was, yes, exactly. And there was kind of a surge in public interest in CRTs again, and prices started going up and stuff. But I, I saw people talking about like, why don't they just go ahead and start making them again if they're that good? And besides like the environmental impact and the cost of manufacturing and stuff, somebody pointed out, and I don't remember the screen size, but I remember reading that the biggest CRT ever made weighed something like 400 pounds i mean and it, and it still wasn't that big a screen by modern standards so it's like okay there you go that's that's why they don't make them anymore yeah the 36 inch panasonic weighed well over 100 pounds and they didn't put fucking handles on it so it was impossible to move and, yeah yeah it was it was it it's was just bad. not it's just not worth it no i, like, get, I get it but like a cocktail arcade cabinet is the biggest crt i ever want to see again yeah right yes that sounds good yeah. that sounds about right Okay, how about Ted in uh, Boston? I'm wondering what you guys think about Windows 10X. It's essentially a new version of Windows 10 that's designed to be significantly more locked down. Unlike S mode, and I'm not super clear what S mode means. I don't think he defines that here, but it's the uh, it's the ARM only version, I believe. Okay, okay, but I could be wrong. So yeah, but yeah, actually, before we get into this, because he doesn't even mention this part, but but 10X is primarily targeted at the foldable market. Is that correct? That was what they were originally pushing it as. as okay, a, but do you think it's going to grow beyond that? Because his, his question is much bigger than like kind of foldables and, and portable platforms. But uh, so, let me read the rest of the email yeah, and then yeah. we, can, we can suss that out. Um, okay, so he says, unlike S mode, uh, it supports all Win32 apps, but they run in a container and can't touch the rest of the system. In theory, this means things are less likely to break, are more secure, and the core of the OS is smaller but you lose control of your system. Is this the future of Windows? Do you want something that acts more like a modern mobile OS? If not, do you think Microsoft will continue to support Win32 indefinitely? As a fun side note, what's your favorite dead operating system? Think BOS. 
BOS is real good. Yeah. Um, okay. So, so the, this 10 X windows, 10 X is, do you remember when Microsoft released windows eight, the, the windows for tablets when there were no tablets and no touchscreens on the market and they focused on tablets and touchscreens exclusively on a thing that they shipped to a billion people. And it was really bad. It was in fact, one of the worst windows as ever. That's the word on the street. (laughs) So this time Microsoft has announced, they announced that foldable PC, which was called the, the surface Neo. Um, which is basically two, it's a laptop with just two screens instead of a screen and a keyboard. And, uh, windows 10 X is the redesigned windows that goes with that, with that particular hardware and other similar, you know, foldable PCs. There's a whole cottage industry in these. Um, they're like bigger than a, than a, like a big tablet, uh, like phone, you know, a big phone, but they're way, way smaller than a laptop. And they're, they're very popular in like electronics marts in China and stuff like that. Um, my hunch is that windows 10 X is them doing the complete redesign of windows 10 10's user interface that has been needed since windows eight and starting it on the on the hardware that they control entirely rather than forcing it out to people who don't want it on their existing legacy installs. So okay. yeah, I, I would assume that this is the future of Windows but probably not in the 2 to 3 year period in a 1 to 3 year time frame. So you think they are using this as a test bed for what will eventually roll out to everything? I think it's I mean, look, it's Microsoft, so they could they could get two years into this and be like, well, we're just going to bring in this oh, normalized totally, totally. windows on this. If if, um, if you're if you're not super familiar with this product and you kind of want a sense of what we're talking about, just Google Windows 10 X start menu uh, because yeah. they have done they have done a full overhaul visual redesign of the start menu specifically for 10 X that looks quite frankly like a lot more elegant or at least like cleaner, if nothing else, than the existing Windows 10 one. Um, it looks like a it, um, it looks like a. a uh, uh, like a tablet OS. It looks like more like iOS Kinda. or yeah, that's, yeah. that's fair. Yeah, or I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I love the way the icons are laid out like a, like a tablet, but, but the point is it's like, it's a full visual refresh. Well, they're which, getting rid of the Metro crap. It right. looks like that's or, what I, or, yeah, that's what I mean. They're expunging the, the Metro, the tile based stuff from windows eight is no longer there. And from the, yeah, I read a windows central article that basically like showed you the visual changes either from hands-ons with the surface Neo prototypes at CES or something else. And I mean, it looks, it looks like they're taking the pieces that are already there. Like the, Hey, there's a search, there's a search menu that searches the stuff on your computer and the internet, right? Yeah. There's a taskbar and it has all the things there, but there's no Metro live tiles. It's just icons, which is all people want because t- live tiles suck. Um, like it's, it seems like a good thing, but it also seems like a thing that's designed to be a pure touch, uh, for the most part, interface. And sure. for example, on the Windows 10 X, on the default screens, on the Surface Neo demos, like Windows could, apps could only be full screen, right? It's a small device and it right. kind of makes sense in a tablet context. Yeah. But when you plug in a monitor, then it, presumably you can do full size window manipulation and stuff like that. I don't think Microsoft's going to make that mistake again. So, um, so what, yeah. what what we're talking about here is is pretty much entirely superficial, like user interface type stuff. But what he's mentioning is a much more fundamental underlying kind of compartmentalization of the way that the OS handles software. Do you think well, that is going to roll out as well? Because that seems like it could be pretty controversial if that I mean, comes that, to the desktop. Well, so the idea, this is something that they floated a long, long time ago. But the idea that Windows was just going to become a hypervisor and each app would run right. in a VM and, right. and they'd just be distributing VMs basically, right? Um, 
I, I don't know that that's a terrible idea, especially in a world where we might have where you might have an ARM laptop and an Intel on your desktop. And, you know, then you just download the right VM for your platform and and things just work regardless of where you are. Um, I I think. I mean, if, if that's the direction they're going to go, this is the right way to do it, to roll it out slowly. I think containerizing applications and maintaining ability to share between them by copying and pasting and drag and dropping and stuff like that is is crucial. But if they can do that, it's I think that's a I think this is a good change. It means you're less likely to have one malicious application mess up everything on your system. Sure. Yeah. Like the security benefits are pretty obvious, but I mean, he, he does drop that ominous phrase. You lose control of your system. And I don't know how much of that is sort of like the, the, the general like standard type of FUD that goes along with the sort of change versus like how much it would legitimately impact the use of your computer. I mean, I, I think that that's definitely, it's definitely a concern. You know, when Microsoft switched from making selling us OSs to selling us a service that's disguised as an OS, I think <laughs> sure. I think we, you know, I think we ended up. That was the big step on this path that, that he seems to concerned about. I don't know that any of this is going to happen. Also, uh, the Neo. There were rumors earlier this month that the Neo is delayed until uh, out of 2020. It was originally going to release 2020. It's delayed. They didn't say it was related to coronavirus or anything like that, but presumably supply chains have been impacted and development timelines on the OS have been updated, impacted and, and things like that. So sure. Um, like this may, more time. Yeah. It remains to be seen whether they're going to release the OS to manufacturers without the Neo. I would be shocked if this is something you can get on your normal ass windows PC for at least a year or two. Yeah. Get a little more time to cling to your old win 32 executables. Yeah. And I mean, but the, but the beautiful thing about this approach is if they, if you have old win 32 executables, what it's an executable. What the fuck are you saying? Executable. You just have a windows 32 (laughs) VM that lives inside with everything else. And that's where your, your old dumb bullshit runs. You're trying to bait bait me there with that one. I'm not taking the bait. I'm sorry. Look, you just got to get those executables, man. Um, yeah, I guess I guess realistically, if they implement the support correctly, it's not like you're not still going to be able to run stuff. Yeah, it'll still work. Yeah, that's the whole. Um, I mean, look, Microsoft's whole goal for for all of the history of the company has been to make sure that no software that ever ran on a Windows machine won't still run if yes. you try hard enough. Yes. So no, they're no, not going to throw no, that away now. No Win32 application left behind. God help us. Um, Speaking of uh, kind of development and release timelines for computer products, uh, here's a question from Matthew. Two separate friends asked me this week about building a new PC, uh, but I'm a bit reticent to recommend buying before new hardware comes out. However, I'm also concerned about supply side problems when those new Z490s and Ampere parts hit the shelves in the summer and fall. Should I spec out builds for them now or tell them to wait for the new hotness? I have... I have a stock answer for this. Oh boy. I, I'm guessing it's going to be very different from my stock answer, but let's, let's hear it. Well, so I don't know that my stock, my stock answer, I don't know the stock answer applies. My stock answer is you know, if you need a computer, you need a computer by the oh, computer sure. now. Yes. That goes without saying if you need one. Yeah. If, if you, it, it, a lot of it depends on what they're doing. If they're using a computer to play, you know, not Doom Eternal and upcoming new crisis and cyberpunk and stuff that is, you know, going to be computationally expensive, uh, hard on the on the machine. 
probably like if they want a laptop, it doesn't matter if they want a gaming PC. That's a different story. Yes. There are new video cards supposedly maybe going to be announced later this uh, next month, May 14th by NVIDIA. And then AMD presumably will follow that. I, I mean, I've recommended people who've asked me lately. I've told, hey, if you have an existing video card, it's probably safe to buy a CPU and motherboard and memory and put your old video card in that and then upgrade the video card when the new video cards are announced later this summer and sure. available. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's okay. I, this is a, this is a more nuanced approach than I thought I was going to hear. Well, well, I mean the the other wild card here is we're in a situation where like if you are a single person living by yourself, the computer is a literal lifeline to social and oh, sure. to, like to your sanity in a lot of ways, right? Yeah. You know, so if that's the situation that your friends are in, fuck it, buy whatever you want, oh, totally. go crazy, it goes spend without away. saying. If, if, if they don't have something that is meeting their needs right now, then it goes without saying, just get a computer. But, but yeah, get know, the computer I'm, now. I'm guessing a big chunk of our audience has a good functional or, you know, a, a decent functional machine already. And if they're anything like me, sometimes the upgrade itch just starts getting uh, hard to ignore. Yeah. And that's, that that's right. a little bit, that's a, that's a more nuanced situation of like the, the one attitude I don't much care for in this situation is there's always something better around the corner. Just buy something. I mean, th- because, that, that because, is because 100% true. It, it is true that there is no perfect time to buy new computer stuff, but sometimes are better than others. I mean, I mean, and, so the situation, the place we're at right now with new consoles coming presumably this winter, right? Is that the next probably the next GPU is going to be on par if you get the right one with what's in the consoles, right? Which will give you a certain amount of future proofness that you don't necessarily have buying what's available today. Yes. Yes. So, so the consoles be, especially if you're in games are a major factor because development trends are going to trickle down from those. Um, also the CPU arms race is in a weird spot right now because uh, the, the, the 10th generation Intel core chips are supposed to be announced like any day now, like potentially next week. Yeah. Um, but that said, it seems like Intel has been struggling to keep up for the last couple of generations. And it sounds like this is this one is going to be a kind of a, a whiff from what I've been reading. I mean, that. So, yes, the the the, the price performance goal right now, the price performance uh, winner right now is AMD by far. And even the performance oh, yeah. performance winner is AMD in a lot of cases, yes, depending on yes. your workload. Yes. So it's going that way. And, and the, the the next generation AMD architecture is due out later this year. Um, so there's that. And so I think, I think it's Comet Lake is the Intel chips that are about to be announced. And those are yet another iteration of the Sky Lake architecture that started like what, five, five years ago at this point? Uh, four, yeah. I guess it went from Broadwell to Sky Lake, right? And it, like, it's thought that those are going to top out at 10 cores, which is pretty paltry compared to what AMD's got going on right now. It's based on a five-year-old architecture. It sounds like, like they, they still haven't moved to a smaller process. So the talk is like the TDP is going to be very high on these things. So these sound like a pretty disappointing refresh, but the actual next successor Intel architecture to Skylake is supposed to be the chip after these, which that, potentially yeah, this, would, be, would be next year. This seems like the last gasp of the of the yes, platform, but also absolutely. you never I mean, you kind of know on Intel because the channel leaks a lot. Um, I, I here's the here's my secret. I don't really think CPUs matter for most people who are playing Maybe games not. anymore. I yeah maybe not. We're kind of getting back into that territory though again, especially with streaming now, where you actually do have some amount of heavy lifting taking place on a CPU. Plus, again, like you uh, you can't ignore the the nature of the next consoles. Right, and they've got I mean, they've got much beefier CPUs, so that absolutely could start mattering again. 
Well, and they have more than four cores available to games, right. which is which is the big change. So you right. you we might be in a situation where you want an eight or eight, eight or ten core CPU right. next generation, where you like you absolutely didn't need it just to play games this generation. Right. So um, with with I, the impending new new console hardware and the nature of where PC platforms are at, I mean, I didn't even, we didn't even mention like the transition to PCI Express four and some stuff like that that's going on right now. Like we're kind of like that stuff like doesn't matter. The, just to be uh, clear. Like it know, kind man. of does, but it really like like you, if you're looking at PCI Express 3.0 versus PCI Express 4.0, you're better off like you're you're better off getting more getting faster memory than getting a PCI Express 4.0 card because every Unreal Engine game that's out there not, is going I'm to not be talking about for, I'm not talking about for graphics. That bus is relevant for storage devices now, now that there are actually NVMe drives out there on the market that can actually come close to saturating it. Yeah, but. I mean, the the workload that most people do, even if you're playing games and loading games off of an SSD onto the onto the uh, into memory, it, it you're not going to like it'll be the difference between, you know, 1.5 seconds and 1.3 seconds on a load. And hey, like, you're not going to notice. I know I mean, math. 1.3 yeah. is smaller than 1.5. OK, right. yeah, look, I can't argue with that. It's unassailable logic. I just feel like oh, I, if, I get it. I, I get yeah. the, I get the diminishing returns argument for sure. But 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 again, with the consoles focusing on fast storage, like just people don't really know where this stuff is going to go. And I just feel like now is kind of a particularly bad time to to be buying in on a large scale. I mean, so here's here's the question always is, are you the is the person who's asking this question? It's the person who's asking for PC buying up advice. Are they going to keep the same computer and never open the box. And in five years when it's slower, eight years when it's slower, four years when it's too slow for them, give it to somebody else, sell it to somebody else, get rid of it. Or are you going to be upgrading video cards and putting bigger SSDs in and doing all that stuff? And if you're the former, it really matters. Fuck all. Like really it doesn't, especially, Eh, especially if you're playing games at like 1080p, it doesn't fucking matter what's in the computer. The new video cards aren't going to make a difference. None of that shit's going to matter because whatever video card you buy today is going to drive your shit at 1080p and it's going to look great and it's going to run fine. That's a fair point. Yeah, I am definitely in that latter category of like, I, I want to know what yeah. what ex, what expand expandability does this machine have now? Because I'm going to want to put different things in it in three years. Or but whatever. at the same time, when was the last time you upgraded a CPU without upgrading a motherboard? Well, it's been quite a while, but that's largely because of just the way that Intel does things. Well, yeah, Intel sucks and they don't let you do that, really. They don't let you do that. And that's been largely an effect of their market position, right? Like they can get away Mm. with that. But because because now that AMD is back on the scene, like their upgrade path is much, much more generous than Intel's. Well, yes, they stick with they stick with the same same socket for much longer. You can put much more advanced chips in older motherboards. So that's a that's a that's a strategic choice, I think. You know, the benefit of the benefit of Intel's insistence on shit canning old, perfectly viable motherboard chipsets on the reg is that you get faster memory and things like that. You know, if you put an old if you put a new CPU in a machine with old, slow ass launch DDR4 memory, you're going to have a a bad, you know, you're not going to have as good an experience as you could have. Right. So you have some flexibility, but it comes at the cost of raw raw performance. Eh, Sure. I don't know. I, I feel like um yeah, like if I feel like anybody listening to this podcast knows which category they fall in and whether they, they they're safe yes. upgrading now or not. I feel yes. like if you're advising your friends, think about how they're going to use their computers and just buy help them get a computer so they can be less bored and uh, during the <laughs> lockdown. Sure. Yeah. 
Yeah, there, yeah. I guess there, there is no one size fits all answer to this question. It does depend on the person. Sadly, no. Yeah. And if and if it's a friend who's going to require a lot of tech support, <laughs> I would strongly encourage you to recommend that they buy computers from somebody that will do the tech support for them so sure. that you don't have to do that. Yes. I, I mean, I'm, I'm serious. Oh, totally. I mean, I, yeah. Given all the things that can go wrong with a PC that you build yourself, you don't want to be on the hook for somebody else's machine in that capacity. I, my deal when I help somebody build a computer is always that they're on their own for support and I'll be happy to refer them to that's, somebody that's better than <laughs> that's Geek Squad. A, that's a good but policy. I don't, I don't take support calls. Good to be upfront about that stuff. Yeah, it's important uh, to be upfront about that stuff. Otherwise, yes, you'll for end sure. up having fewer friends. Yes, absolutely. Uh, question from Andrew. What is the first piece of tech that you remember breaking down <laughs> and being able to reassemble and have it all work? Any fun stories where it went awry and you had to call in some assistance? Oh, man. Um, boy, I don't remember. Uh, so... I was always afraid to open up TVs and stuff when I was a kid. Oh, yeah, I, I still am. That's I mean, I didn't even know the dangers back then, but and I do now. But but getting inside of a CRT is a special kind of bad, obviously. Yeah. I mean, um, my, the first answer that comes to mind for me is the original PlayStation. I, okay. Uh, wow. You opened a PlayStation? Oh, yeah. I modded uh, three or four PlayStations. How did you mod? Uh, how did the, the I didn't ever do that. It, how did the it, it, it also it, it also happened to be my first experience with soldering. I'm pretty sure. I think that's the first time I ever soldered anything. What did you have uh, to solder? It was just a, a mod chip. Oh, oh, so you you put it? I, I I don't know how this works. How, how does it paint, paint? Oh, oh, I just assumed you were you. I, okay, I just figured you must have done that. No, uh, no, no. I didn't have a PlayStation. Oh yeah, yeah. No, it was just a chip that you bought online. It was like a little four. I think you soldered it to four points on the motherboard or something like that. Was it like a um, CMOS chip with the things on either side or uh, I'm not sure. No, no, it was a, it was a, uh, and I'm not sure of the terminology. It was kind of a free floating chip with wires sticking out. They, they generally oh, came weird. wrapped in electrical tape. So I don't <laughs> think I ever pulled the tape off and examined the chip too closely. Oh my God. <laughs> Which in it, retrospect, maybe soldering a chip onto the, uh, an electronic device without knowing what it does is a questionable decision. But look, you're on a list now, Brad. Yeah, it was, it was, I mean, it was super easy to just look up online what to do and figure it out myself. Um, my my crowning achievement a was you know learning to solder and getting those things to work and boot and play the games and everything properly but the last one i ever did was the last playstation i bought because those things failed a lot and i kept having to buy new ones i bought a little um bought a little rocker switch at radio shack and wired that switch into i think the ground wire on the ship so you could turn it off drilled out a little spot on the back of the the playstation and mounted the switch in there all nice so you could turn the mod chip on and off that was very proud I was very proud. Um, I took apart one of my friends in college's computer before I knew how to build a computer, before I built my first computer because he was having some problems and needed a fan replaced. And I swapped that out. I took apart the toaster when I was about 12. Okay. Now we're um, talking. Yeah, because it, it needed to be dis- completely disassembled to be cleaned. And I got it back together, but it was a little hairy. <laughs> Nobody got uh, electrocuted though. Um, the first hard thing I took apart it wasn't like a laptop or a PC was probably a GBA to put the light mod in it. Okay. You know, the backlight. Cause remember yeah. the, the GBA launched with no backlight and I, I, I paid 60 bucks for a kit from someplace and pried the thing apart and put it in there and got a shitload of lint in there. So I always was <laughs> yeah. able to see the lint and uh, yeah. Was that the afterburner? That was the afterburner. I think. Yeah. Okay. You had to, you had to, um, you had to carve out a little bit of uh um, I had a Dremel at that point, so I had to carve okay. out a little bit of the plastic to get it to fit, I think. Sure. That was a fun uh, one. I'm trying to think of um, the most recent example I can think of that's like outside of my kind of normal domain of experience was my AV receiver. Mm. 
Um, wow. It's not, it's not worth getting into what I had to replace, but I had to order a new front panel for it and a couple of other parts that got damaged. Wow. For a variety of reasons. But okay. uh, so I didn't pull like every circuit board out of that thing. And I certainly didn't touch the transformer or any of the electrical stuff. Uh, I was very careful in there, but um, I did get a good look at what the inside of my AV receiver looked like. And it's like, oh, there's the there's the little board with all the HDMI ports on it. And there's you know, there's that like I was kind of able to get a good sense of like, eh, you know, on some level, this is just a different type of computer that mostly just processes audio and video signals. Yeah, uh, but that but that felt good to like go on the kind of Sony repair parts, you know, whatever, whatever super dry gray beard electrical supply part reseller website I ended up on and order the right parts and put that stuff back together. That was fun. My all time favorite of that kind of hack was probably the TiVo hard drive hack. Okay. I, oh, I bought you a, put a new, you could put a bigger hard drive in, right? Oh dude. But the, do you know how it worked? It's so oh. good. So in the old days, like when the TiVo came out in like 2007 or 2008 or something like that, Gina bought one. Cause she's like, this thing is one of her friends had one. She was like, this thing is incredible. You got to see this. And she, it's the first consumer electronics she ever was excited about and was like, went to Best Buy and picked out and brought home. And it was, I think a 14 gig drive in there and it used MPEG two video. So it was good for like three or four hours of recording. Right. And we use that TiVo for ages. I paid for the lifetime service, the whole thing on it. And when we moved to California, multiple like 100, 100 gig drives were starting to get cheap or maybe probably 100 gig drives. So the way the hack worked was you had to boot into Linux. You put the drive in and you had to do this thing that was called blessing the drive, which basically <laughs> okay. was just writing some shit to the beginning of the hard drive that told the TiVo that it was a drive and how big it was. And then you put in the TiVo and the TiVo did all the formatting and stuff. And once you had done that, then you could do any drive up to the size that the drive controller on the TiVo could understand, Wow! which was maybe it was a 30. I, I don't remember. It was the, the limit was an LBA limit on that first TiVo. So like you couldn't make it bigger than a certain certain amount of gigs, even if it was a bigger drive. And it was always terrifying because if you mess that up, then you would bless your boot drive. <laughs> Okay. in your machine in your pc oh, sure. yes and sure that would have some bad effects yes i'm sure uh, um but it was it was it was a, the people who came up with that it was a lovely hack and of course at this point i'm sure for a long time they would just like the people who were good at would just sell drives that were pre-blessed sure and you like you would get it you plug it in you could it, it it mattered whether it was the first drive in the system or the second drive in the system there was a whole series of processes but it was a it was a cool uh, that was a cool thing how how good did that feel when you got that working did you feel like you got away with something? Because that's how I typically oh, you feel. You always feel like you're this. stealing something. I have it's not. Like, I I have got a passion for subverting overpriced, like integrated add-on stuff like that by finding ways to DIY it. Well, on on that one, you couldn't like you could bless a drive that would make it way bigger than any of the existing drives that TiVo actually sold in their sure. machines. Sure. Like, so you'd have uh, like 200 hours of video storage on right. that thing. It was amazing. I, I did. I don't know if you ever did this. I did something similar with the Xbox 360 hard drive add-on. Because remember oh. how it was modular? It just plugged into the side. Like yeah. even, even the drives. I mean, even the consoles that came with the drive in the box, it was still a technically a separate piece yeah, that could be detached. Yeah, you the top. It made a good click. And I think, I want to say when it launched, 20 gig was the only hard drive size. I thought it was 14 uh, or 10. It was small. It was, it was small. But like, you know, over time they rolled out like a 120 gig model and then a 250 gig and stuff. And instead of going out and buying the overpriced new drive in the new enclosure, I just busted the old one open. And there, there was a very similar process of you could just buy an aftermarket laptop drive 
and plug it into your PC and, and you had to run some Microsoft stuff on it to similarly <laughs> basically bless the drive. Could you copy well, could you copy your old saves and stuff over? Or did you have to back them up to remember. USB or something? I don't know if I ever bothered or if anybody ever bothered because it was easy enough to just back those up to like a memory card or USB stick. Yeah. You could you could you could extract those easily enough. Um oh. So I think I just did the bare drive, but like, you know, again, I just kind of cracked that little plug in module open and, you know, stuck the modded new hard drive in there and off to the races. As uh, I was setting up my daughter's switch and I was putting just a 128 gig micro SD card into it, I was like, that was $20 or something. I was like, wow, this is it, it's incredible to me still yeah, that yes. this thing that's smaller than my pinky fingernail yep, yep. holds 128 gigs of data anyway. Yep. Yep. Uh, last thing I'll mention, not that it's super related, but did I ever tell you that I turned my 360 Skyrim save into a PC Skyrim save? Yeah, I, we talked about this. Oh, did we talk about that? Okay. I feel like we talked about it on a tested podcast years ago, but it's a good, like it was, it was a cool process. Yeah. I mean, it was, uh, it was related to the fact that they let you start copying save games over to your own USB stick because in the early days they sold those proprietary memory cards. Yeah. And that was the only way the 360 OS would let you get those saves off. Goofy. But, you know, yeah, at some point, at some point they relented and let you just start formatting your own USB sticks, which immediately led to people writing homebrew utilities to unpack those safe files and get data out of them. You could do that for um, Mass Effect, too, as I recall. Yeah. And it turned out inside whatever 360 wrapper that they had to embed that Skyrim save in. It was just the exact same save file format they used <laughs> on the PC. So I just unpacked <laughs> that thing and put that save in my Skyrim directory on PC. Uh, I, there, like, there it went. It's it's amazing to me. What was it? I saw a game the other day. Is it The Witcher that will pull your PC save onto the Switch yes. now? Yeah, and that's actual Steam integration. You, if I understand correctly, I should I should try it just to do it. But uh, my understanding is you sign into your Steam account on the Switch in in The Witcher for for Switch. That's bananas, uh, and it ties into your Steam Cloud support and just pulls your steam saves will it send it back up too, or do, do uh, you, do i believe you know? it does i want to say that i read that it does sync both ways and that's that is, is all i've ever wanted in a hand yeah it's incredible and like cd project seems so sort of like you know customer focused that they would do something like that which yeah. you wouldn't expect from a lot of developers without monetizing it but uh that's right. awesome but yeah yeah that's fun stuff um you want to do one or two more yeah, should we move into the final stage of the show? Yeah, here? so um you before discla- we move disclaim on, it. Yeah, before we move on, we want to let people know uh we have heard people say that they don't it's nice to have podcasts where you don't talk about coronavirus or COVID-19 all the time. Uh so from this point on, we have a couple of coronavirus adjacent questions. There's nothing scary or bad. It's just like questions about face ID and masks and voice chat and stuff like that. Uh but this is your content warning. So yeah. from this point on, we are going to talk about some coronavirus adjacent things. Yeah. Uh, nothing too frightening, though. Um, here's one from Martin in Sweden. Uh, as everybody is affected by COVID-19 and many can uh, need to connect online to family and friend friends, uh, tips for gear to older people in specific would be great. My mom and dad use Facebook Messenger on the phone to call us and mirror the screen to their Chromecast uh, on the TV for better visibility. Would a Bluetooth conference mic or speaker uh, or and speaker rather uh, be a good investment to increase the quality of their call? Uh, is Skype or Zoom a better choice than Messenger? Any tips would be appreciated. We we have done this. My parents live far away and often on like Christmas morning, we'll FaceTime them and then put the FaceTime up on the TV using the Apple TV AirPlay stuff. 
it's not a great experience. Yeah. Uh, so if you've listened to the podcast for a while, you know that we don't generally advocate signing up for new Facebook services, but since your parents are already there and seem pretty comfortable and that's the thing they like to use, uh, Facebook actually sells a line of products that are designed for home video conferencing to make it easier. You may not be able to get them now because anything with a camera on it seems to be in really short supply. Yeah. Yeah. There's a great crisis of webcam availability going on right now, apparently. But uh, so the, the products you want are called the Facebook portal, the portal mini and the portal TV, uh, the portal and portal mini are just smart screens with cameras on them that tie into the Facebook messengers, video calls. Uh, the portal TV is a, like, it looks like the connect kind of, it's like a big wide camera with a bunch of microphones on it that you sit on bot on the bottom above or below your TV. And it basically turns your TV into a giant, uh, video calling window. Um, there are similar products from other things. I think those are probably the most consumer oriented ones. Uh, the thing you said a second ago actually goes to the heart of the, this matter for me, which is to just let people use what they want to use and are comfortable yeah. with. Like I, I tried, I tried for years to get my parents to, use, to kind of some of the stuff you talked about, like, like, Oh, what if you, if you airplay your iPad to the TV, you'll see me bigger. Or, Oh, if you, if you Skype on this Xbox, instead of using your iPad, this, you, you know, this will be easier, but like, it's never actually it's, worth the hassle. It's just confusing. It's confusing, confusing for people that don't, don't like live and breathe this stuff. It's just, it's never it, worth it. So we, we just kind of, we've regressed back to just like they hold their iPhone up or their iPad on the table at a cockeyed angle where I can barely see the top half of their face or whatever, but it's like, whatever, getting, getting it, getting it to work expeditiously and just communicating is, is much more important than actually like trying to maximize everybody's AV quality. One of the things like, look, yeah, part of our role as the young people in these relationships is to sacrifice our experience so that they can have a better one. My dad insists on buying these huge folio cases for iPad for his iPad that are I guarantee you not of not licensed cases so they don't have the holes in the right places for the microphone. So there's always some shit rubbing on one of the microphones, <laughs> sure. which makes all of the noise canceling stuff sure. stop working. We just my daughter just goes, Pap has t- a terrible, terrible microphone. Um, oh, that oh, that Pap. Uh, here's one more email from Adam. Uh, and well, I think we've touched on this before, so this we, we can kind of maybe update on this topic a little bit. Uh, in this new age of mask wearing we find ourselves in, what does this mean for users using Face ID? I'm hearing mixed results on if it works or not, but given that we're in this for a while, what are alternatives or other things that might make it work better? I might just be clueless as I sit here with my notchless iPhone 8. Uh, so my friend Danielle Baskin, who is an artist and tech person in the Bay Area, launched a product kind of... I say kind of because um, it, it's like she started it as a goof and then it kind of became a thing. Um, yeah. And I, I think we talked about this a few weeks ago when it first we happened. Did. Very we briefly. Did. Uh, so she she has a site called faceidmasks.com. You send her a picture, sign up, and uh, she will send you a mask back when they're in production with your face on it that's contoured in such a way that it should work with face ID at least in, in her tests up until this point, they've worked. And uh, there you go. It's uh, faceidmasks.com. She, as she says, I'm going to go ahead and tell you, she says, how can I get one? She said, if you enjoy late stage capitalism, facial recognition, respirator masks will retail for $40 per mask. They are still in development. 
we we will not be making these while there is still a global mask shortage. So there you go. Sure. That's good. Um, That's good to hear. I Um, I also want to read the is this a joke section of the website? Is this a joke? Yes. Period. No. Period. We're not sure. Viruses are not a joke. Wash your hands when you can. Get vaccines when you can. So, yes. good advice. Uh, She's not taking anyone's money, Um, but you can sign up for the list if you want to sign up for one when she sells it. To um, to touch on this question a little more broadly, uh, obviously, this pandemic is not going to last forever or at least not be as severe as it is forever. Um, But like there is the idea that, you know, like masks, for example, are culturally very accepted in Asia already and very common. And like you've you've seen the idea that like, oh, maybe that cultural shift will also occur over here. So provided that we do move into a more mask heavy future can you think of any other sort of biometric options besides facial recognition that might become commonplace in phones iris scanning retina scans dna swabs what look let's think about this what if there's a little sensor on the front of your phone that you have to lick every time you want to log into your phone yeah oh man that thing's filthy already what if you what if you embed an nf nfc chip in your fingertip and you have to touch your fingertip to the nfc sensor on the back of the phone to unlock it so we all have to become cyborgs i mean look it's it's time to embrace your future brad you can't right. go outside right. without right. a mask is here uh, yep. it's time to become more my my mask project is going to be putting a bunch of ir leds under the mask so it blows out all the facial recognition cameras <laughs> that's pretty good and uh yeah that's that's, uh, that's some that's some good like uh digital anarchism I mean, I like on it. the plus side if we do get into a place where everybody's wearing masks all the time and you kind of want to and it's socially acceptable and all that it means that like face face tracking stuff is going to have real problems which is great. I think yeah. that's a good thing for society. So sure. That's a yeah. good point. Could it's not all um, bad. Yes. Perhaps I not. Shave my uh, beard. Real I just I can't help mentioning this real quick just because he said iPhone eight. Yes. I'm thinking really hard about trading in my iPhone eight for an iPhone SE two. Tell me how stupid that is. I know exactly how stupid the that is. For the SE? It's practically the same phone. It's practically the same. Well, but phone. the processors, it's the the 13X is hella fast. It is, it is much yeah. faster. Yes. The CPU is, is the difference. I guess it's got another gig of RAM in it. If you know, so that kind of matters. RAM as doesn't well. matter that much on but, iOS. But, I know, but, but the, the iPhone eight already has an a 11 in it. It's not like it's a slow phone. Like I can't complain about the performance in real world. Did situations. the eight come out the year the 10 came out? It did, right? Yes. So you you yes. and I have the same and age phone with more or less the same processor. I think if you have a 10, then we have the same processor. Yeah. It's just that mine looks like the six, you know, it's that yeah. form factor with the touch ID and, and that whole thing. I'm holding out for the 12 so, is what I'm going to upgrade. Probably. That's probably what I should do. Well, so the SE two is so cheap. It's like 500 bucks, right? Like I, it's 549 is the biggest one you can get. I think the, I think 399 is the, what's the big one? 128, no. 256, 256 for 549. And I can get enough trade in credit to knock, knock that down significantly. I wish that they'd put a slightly better camera on it. That's the only thing that bums it, me it out. It is sl- well, so I don't, I don't know if the, maybe the optics aren't better, but maybe it's that the, the processing is sufficient to do some of the better tricks. Does it, does it have all the stuff to do? Does, AR? It does, have, does it have a wide angle? It does have, uh, I'm not so sure. I, I want to say the, I want to say it's got the same lenses and stuff as an eight. I like, if you go down the list, it's like same screen, same chassis, same optics, same, almost everything except CPU and memory. And like one other thing. So, the scuttlebutt I hear from friends who would know is that there's going to be something cool coming with the next iPhone 
in terms of like okay. hardware well, that's, features that's pretty, that give you things that you don't have currently. Okay. Is one of those things not having a notch? I don't know. I no, I'm talking about stuff that's real <laughs> and matters. Damn it. <sighs> okay. Well, either way, it sounds like I should wait till September and not just go get a new phone that is almost exactly like my old phone. I feel like this phone is for people who have one of those uh those SEs, the the five Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. If you're on the old SE yeah. or like an iPhone six or something and you like that form factor, like if I, if I hadn't already bought this iPhone eight, I would rush out and get one of these. Right yeah. I, I think, I think, I think, you know, uh, sometimes you have to decide. Plus how often are you really on your phone right now? You're in your house all the time. You got a big PC Not right now so much. Yeah, you're gonna, you, look, if you think you're going anywhere before September, then, uh, hopefully you're right. I don't know. My my phone is pretty much a controller for the little LED light strip that I have mounted behind my desk right now. So yeah, you're probably right about that. Um, I think that's as good. A, I guess you got one more. Well, no, not another email. I was going to mention since you brought up swabs. I don't know if you want to talk about that whole oh, thing. Oh yeah, you got swabbed. How was it? It sounded I got, horrible. I got a. Uh, I got. I got the COVID nineteen test. If you want to talk about this, not, I don't know how. I don't know how tech related Wait. that is. Well, it was yesterday, so I can't tell you just yet. No. Do you have results yet? Are you still Schrodinger? Are you do you do you you may or may not have COVID nineteen, and we won't know until you. I have I have I have I have no reasonable expectation that I have it. This was pre this is pre op screening for a sinus procedure, okay. unrelated. Yeah, but because it's a respiratory thing, if I have the virus, it's bad for the people that are treating my sinus issue. Yeah, nobody wants to be in the room with well while, while they're reaming yes. out your nose. Yes, I have. I'm not I'm not symptomatic. I don't have any reasonable expectation that I have it, but they have to be sure before they can treat me for this other nose. Well, thing. That makes sense. Um, so what was so, the process like? What you went? You went to the like, did you go to a drive through clinic or something? I went to an urgent care, which is what my doctor recommended. Okay. Um, thankfully, I like I didn't have to deal with the process of calling somebody and convincing them to test me, which sounds like it's still pretty um, arduous for a lot of people. Thankfully, I just had doctor's orders, so I just did it. So you went to an urgent um, quick care in the network for your doctor and well, he recommended one he had spoken to that would be willing to do it. Okay. Um I almost want to talk more about the scene at the urgent care than I do the actual test, which is like fairly uneventful. Well, uh, before we yes, agreed. But what was the test like? I've heard that it's horrible. Um I it, so I had also been led to expect it to be horrible. And I'm going to say it's significantly less than horrible. How long was the thing they jammed up your it's nose? Not, it's not pleasant. It was up there for probably 10 seconds. But it was, it was like, have you, have you had a flu test where they do that too? I don't think I've ever had a flu test. It could very well be the exact same thing for all I know. So the flu test, they jam a thing that looks kind of like a pipe cleaner on a stick up your nose and rain yes. it around for a minute and then pull it back out. That's what it was. That, that was the biggest surprise to me was that I expected just an extra long Q-tip. Yeah. Cotton swab type yeah. thing. And it was not that. It was a... Like you said, it was a very thin, spindly, like plastic, abrasive, pipe cleanery looking yeah. kind of thing. It feels real it was weird. Like sharp. It's not pleasant. No, but it's not like I didn't. I expected it to be much worse based on what I had heard about it than it actually was. You, I will say the the only actual really. I mean, it was not comfortable, but the only really bad thing about the test itself was suppressing the urge to sneeze the whole time it was up there. <laughs> Because I was fucking dying to sneeze. I'm sure they would have loved <laughs> like that. The, that's what. That's what the, she knowledge. I. She, she was like. She was like. Oh, are you okay? Does it hurt? And I was like. Yeah, I'm just trying. Just because you know it's very awkward to have this person granted in a borderline hazmat suit standing right in front of me wow. that I am trying not to sneeze on. So as soon as she pulled it out, I had to turn around. Also, we were in the back alley. She took me out in the back alley to swap. Wait, me. You, that's you how literally got a back alley COVID nine te- nineteen test. 
Well, the, the facility itself was extremely <laughs> modern and nice and upscale and, and very well kept. And I'll we'll get into that. But for the actual swabbing process, they took me out at the back alley, back alley. which I can't blame them for. Wow. Okay. Um, yeah. Okay. So but uh, tell, tell me a tale, Brad. Tell me tell me of the urgent care center. What it was, it was what was actually the most fascinating part to me was seeing what and granted, I'm sure every facility is somewhat different about this, but seeing how a facility is conducting itself right now that is actually dealing with you know, more or less the front lines of this thing. Yeah. Um, I wore a mask all the way over there, just trying to be conscientious. Also, I mean, actually, there are technically orders in place that everybody has to hear yeah. right now, which doesn't mean that nearly everybody I saw on the way over there is actually wearing one. Anyway, that's a whole different problem. Um, we'll get there. So I got there in the mask. I walk up to the front door. I see through the windows. First of all, there is not a soul in there except the staff. No other patients. Okay. Uh, granted, That's this was good. toward the end of the day. That's what you want. This was later, it's kind of it's kind of mid afternoon, so it's not super surprising. But uh, I see through the window every person working in there. Like I said, is wearing like like their bonnet, uh, bonnet, um, mask, face mask, like shield, yeah, plexiglass, uh, gown, gloves, booties on the feet, like the whole works. And that's good. I walk up to the I walk up to the desk, and the the nurse at the front walked up to the the front door. And I thought she was coming to let me in. She walked up to the door and just tapped on a sign on the front of the door and then just walked away. <laughs> and I read, I looked at the sign and it was a long list of, it was basically their kind of COVID-19 protocol for anybody entering the facility. Wow. And, and it was just, it was pretty standard stuff of like, like you will be required to sanitize your hands or wash your hands when you enter. If you're not wearing a mask, you were, we will give you a mask that you must wear at all times. And at the end, it was basically like, if you can send all of this stuff, then call this phone number and we will let you in. Wow. Uh, that's intense yeah. and, he, and even when i called and said hey i'm here for my appointment i'm good I, I i will abide by all the protocols they still wanted to take my id and insurance card through a crack in the door and process Did that they, like, with me outside alcohol it before they handled it i don't know i didn't i didn't, didn't see watch. okay um wow. so yeah, they processed my information and then when she let me in the door she took me straight to the exam room like no sitting in the waiting area no nothing like literally was like follow me go this way um it occurred to me after the fact that I didn't touch any surfaces in there. She opened like every door in front of me. I mean, that makes sense. Which I assume I assume just means they they don't want anybody who might be infected touching anything. So they're going to do everything for you. It was it was inc- it was incredibly regimented and and uh, expedient. Like I was in and out of there in like 10 minutes. I mean, I I was very impressed with their professionalism and how well kind of mapped out and choreographed the whole thing was. Well, that's how the urgent care near me works regularly. Like, like you go, usually you don't go to the waiting room. Like if you pre, if you pre-register for an appointment on their website, then they just, you go straight back to the waiting room. You go right, 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 right back to the exam room when you get there. But it's also oh, a real low traffic one, not in the city. It's in the burbs. Okay. Okay. The, the one I, this was different than the one I normally go to in the city, but they definitely just plop you down in a common waiting area. So then, so then when she did, like, did they do like blood pressure and stuff for you or no? Yeah, they, they did. They did that stuff. They did, you know, blood pressure, temp. Okay. Just the base, the basics real fast. And then, but then she was like, come out this emergency door and we're going to swab you. Pretty much. Yeah. Wow. That's crazy. Back. It was it was an interesting experience. It was kind of surreal, but it was cool. I mean, they did they did a I don't I don't know if it's weird to say which one it was or not, but they did a very good job. Huh? That's awesome. Uh, yeah, good, good for good them. One. Good for you. Yeah. yeah. So so, but right so. now your your probability wave for whether or not you have the Rona has not collapsed until the result no, has been measured. Not, not yet. No, the waveform is still wow. uh, extant. You're a living moment, quantum but, physics experiment. Uh, 
I could. I, I, you know, we could probably come up with probability models for this, though, which I'm going to. I think you're probably OK. I, I, I'm putting my money on the over on you being clean. Rel- relatively low. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Interesting experience, though. Um, and I guess that's it for this week's show. Uh, yeah. As always, thanks, everybody, for listening. This is the moment where we talk about the Patreon. Uh, yes, our favorite, our favorite people. Yeah, thanks to in, in, in more ways than one. <laughs> uh, thanks to all of our all of the people who support the Patreon, but especially thanks to our executive producer and associate producer level uh, patrons, uh, Andrew Cotton and David Allen are our executive produ- producers. Our associate producers are Dan Brockman, Jad Rita, Ezekiel Holiman, Sam Buck, Tom Shea, Graham Banks, Paul Roost, and Ian Bailey. Thank you guys so much. Yeah, thank you. We, dude, we got we to gotta keep the bosses happy. I know. I Can I just say? Just, just, Jad, just act busy every time they walk by. Jad Rita has the coolest name and sounds like they could be like <laughs> an alien in Star Wars. It's a cool name. Look, look, flattery will only get you so far. Hey, man. Or Trek. If you're a Trek person, definitely Trek. Uh, but yeah, yes. no, seriously, thank you to all the patrons. Uh, your support helps the show a ton. And if yes. you would... Uh, I, I also... We were talking about this the other day, but it feels weird that a lot of our show ideas are coming out of conversations we have in the Discord yeah. now. I don't, I don't know how people feel about that. I feel a little bad about it, but I mean, if people want to hear more about that stuff that they're already talking about. I mean, the conversations are delightful. Like it, it always, it's always a weird range. There's been a lot of food stuff again this week is what I've been paying yeah. attention to. Uh, the, uh, there's a hand of, if you're into animal crossing, there's fruit swapping happening in the, in the video game channel. Uh, I, I feel like um, we've had a bunch of music creation stuff, like people troubleshooting ground loop problems, which was very topical a couple of weeks ago. Um, and then I spent, like, a, I, I, I'm sorry, I spent a few minutes at 630 in the morning today talking to a couple of people about uh, how a compiler works on a very detailed that, Yeah, level. I saw that. I, 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 <laughs> like I, 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 I've heard the term linker for a long time, but now I can tell you what it actually does. Oh, that's awesome. Well, we, yeah. we it's it's almost we've reached a point now where I can't like realistically read everything that happens on there. Yes. Um, which maybe means we need to segment out the channels more, but maybe it means things are healthy and it's just going well. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but it's a it's a lovely group of really smart people. Yeah. What yeah. was it? Roman Mars says smart, beautiful listeners who are um, enriching my life, which I'm yes, eminently totally grateful for. I've gotten to the point where I feel like I should maybe restrain myself a little more and just let everybody have fun and interact, like not horn in there all the time, but it's hard to resist. Yeah, exactly. Well, uh, and if you yeah. want to find out how you can back the uh, podcast, back, back the Patreon, get access to the tech cord, tech pod. Well, we should change it to the tech cord. That's going to be better. Uh, tech cord. Yeah. I'm sweat, gonna Sweatpants tech cord. Sweat, oh, God damn it, Wait, Brad. Sweat, sweatpants have cords, right? Yeah. We're, when we make officially licensed sweatpants tech pod, tech pod. Pot, uh, sweatpants sweatpants tech tech draw string the text string it's yeah, the, the tech type cord. of variable it's the, the tech cord doubles as a micro usb as usbc turns out i can't have to keep workshopping this one the sweatpants tech pod tech pod sweatpants all right we have to stop this yeah okay see you guys next week thanks for listening everybody bye about you but having sex somebody started across the street started a loud fucking car oh boy
Hey, that's just that? a little, it's just I do. That's just a little slice of life, you know. My floor is moving. Wow, I, I kind of I feel it myself in my ears over here. They're leaving now. Okay. Okay. Wait. Fuck, he just turned at the stop sign. I can still hear it. <laughs> okay, we're good. 